Welcome to the Deaf Panel. To support our work and get access to all of our weekly bonus episodes, become a patron at patreon.com slash deafpanelpod. And if you want to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, and follow us at deafpanel underscore. So we've got Abby Cardis back today. Abby, it's so nice to have you here. Thanks. Hi. It's that, you know, wonderful time of the year, that magical time where the rush to in-person schooling at all costs is in full throttle once again. And early signs from school districts, which are already open, paint a pretty bleak picture of just how underprepared and under-resourced we are for this fifth wave of cases. And I don't think any of us are really surprised that when Florida schools reopened without mask mandates with communities spread as high as it was a couple of weeks ago, that schools started to shut down. But I think, you know, for risk of stating the obvious, it's good to just sort of start with like an overview of like where we are at right now and how bad things are in the places where it's actually just sort of been uh, totally acceptable to pretend that the pandemic is over. Yeah, for sure. I think it's really, really upsetting to see what's happening in some of these southern states where COVID cases are really surging. There are, I think, you know, some wild number. There's like one school district in Florida that has like 10,000 students in quarantine already. Like in Mississippi, I think there are like 20,000 students in quarantine, 6,000 students or young people have like tested positive for COVID. And this is this is obviously a direct result of schools opening for in-person instruction, particularly in places where mask mandates have been either not implemented at the school level or like outright banned by (laughs) governors. I know that you guys have probably talked about Ron DeSantis banned mask mandates for Florida schools and cited that Emily Oster study that we talked about yes, yeah. as like justification for that. And I don't know, it's it's hard for me to gather my thoughts about this because I feel like we're headed into a second round of having the exact same fights, but the, the pro or not the protagonists, I guess my <laughs> antagonists <laughs> in this fight from the first time around, like there is no acknowledgement that they were wrong. And, you know, it's it's horrible, but you'll perhaps notice how the focus has kind of shifted now, because like last time where we were talking about, well, should schools, you know, should schools even be open? You know, should students be in class in person? You know, how much distance is appropriate in schools now? Like all of that shit is fully off the table. And the fight now (laughs) is basically just is, is about whether schools should be open with or without like mask mandates in place. And um, I don't know, I'm uh, I'm very angry about this and I haven't been on the podcast in a while, so it's hard to control <laughs> my very strong like well, emotions and say something coherent. <laughs> well, it's also, it also seems like difficult to say something coherent because it would be nice if there was like one explanation for why we are here right now, but there's like a bunch. And yeah. like one, like some of them have to do with the fact that the kind of, quote unquote, scientific knowledge that was like elevated in all of these debates were these stylized facts about the uh, susceptibility of children, including unvaccinated children uh, to COVID. And yep. and the fact that like people like Monica Gandhi and their, their voices were just sort of elevated. That's not the only thing uh, that mattered. But the fact that like that was out there and that was something that was like in the water that 
school administrators and others were like drinking. Like this isn't, I guess my point is this isn't just like, it's convenient to look at like DeSantis but, and, and people like Abbott because they're, you know, obviously like actively, it's hard to conclude anything, but like they want these kids to get infected. Like it is part is like part and parcel (laughs) of a thing. Like it's hard to conclude anything else, but like if it were just that, that would be easy. But it's also the fact that like plenty of people who are like not necessarily partisan actors at all, they're just administrators are drinking up this broader like soup of sort of pseudoscientific wisdom Mm -hmm. about Mm -hmm. uh, uh, this, like that, that like, those things have been germinating for a while. Totally. So, yeah, I've been thinking a lot as I've been like reflecting on, you know, the past, what are we, 18, 19 months now? As I've been reflecting on this time, like something that I've been really thinking about a lot is the poverty of kind of the conventional wisdom thinking about schools that really predominated like last right. fall and winter. Especially, you know, here when like the rubber is kind of hitting the road in terms of trying to actually do this, you know, like you remember those studies. It's like, well, did they acquire it in school? And it's like, (laughs) oh, actually, who fucking cares? Like schools are contiguous with the community. Like what the what the shit does it matter? You know, like, oh, is the school rate lower than the community? Like, again, Uh, hey, hey, the school is an architectural building that exists out of time and out of space entirely. Right. It is divorced from reality. The context of the cases that happen within it are entirely its own. It must be evaluated. Right. I mean, yes. (laughs) And I think that we need to talk about I mean, okay, people like Emily Oster, people like Joseph Allen at Harvard. Right. The healthy buildings guy. Like, I think we really need to talk about, like, whose interests were served by their advocacy, right? Yeah. And whether their advocacy for open schools was socially responsible or not. Because, like, now, unfortunately, we are confronted with, like, the facts about COVID, right? The facts about COVID transmission in the context of complete abdication of responsibility by, you know, the federal government, by the Biden administration, And again, it's like it's hard to put my thoughts in order about this, but like there's no federal guidance at all. Apparently, it's fine for governors to just kill thousands upon thousands of people by edict. Right. Like, why the fuck even bother having a federal government and like into the breach step academics who I'm sorry are just like a rat king, like scrambling all over (laughs) each other for fucking book deal. Like, yeah. It is like it's astonishing and it's just the most depressing thing that I can imagine. And of course, now, you know, that the rubber is kind of hitting the, you know, like October, I have this like chiseled into my memory, you know, like with like a laser. But like (laughs) October 9th, 2020, Emily Oster wrote in the Atlantic, schools aren't super spreaders. Like that's the title Mm -hmm. of her thing. And it's like, okay, well, you were wrong. And governors parents, school administrators, right. these, these people all listen to you. Mm-hmm. Right. And now look, and now look what's happening. And I don't know if we just don't care because, you know, people in the South are like NPCs and like, we don't give a shit unless, <laughs> you know, ICUs in San Francisco or Boston or New York city are overflowing. But I don't understand. I mean, Emily Oster, I'm sorry. I'm just like, I'm doing ad hom after ad hom here. No, <laughs> it's fine. But go like, for it. I think, no, we're, we're in that realm. We're in that realm. Like Emily Oster, Emily Oster has bowed out of the, you know, she like tweeted something like, well, I'm confident that I'm no lot like days after it came out that, you know, DeSantis like cited her shitty paper about, you know, masking, uh, 
like days after that happened, she was like, I'm, I don't think I'm adding value to this conversation anymore. Like never have been. Well, the book came out like she doesn't need the promo anymore. <laughs> yeah. Well, but I think, I, I think this is a really telling, I just want to want to pause really quick to just say, because uh, we actually didn't, I think maybe it was in part because we took this week off last week to uh, work on our book, but also because the, there was other stuff that we were talking about on, on the show at the exact time when this happened, we actually haven't addressed the DeSantis thing on the show. So just for context, the thing that Abby's talking about when, so uh, in the end of July and early August, basically both, um, I think it's uh, DeSantis, the governor of Florida and Abbott, the governor of Texas, uh, issued these uh, blanket orders saying that uh, schools could not enforce mask mandates universally throughout the state, that they were forbidden from enforcing. It's about uh, parent choice. Right. That they were forbidden from enforcing <laughs> mask mandates. And when they did when they did this, specifically when DeSantis did this, their press release about it specifically cited this paper by Emily Oster that uh, that Abby is referencing, basically casting aspersions on the efficacy of, you know, masking in schools or, you know, all of these things that we've been talking about for, for months, actually, with Oster, basically. And when and this this I just want to point out too, while Oster may have, you know, tried to somewhat distance herself uh, from from this, first of all, Brown University did the thing that all universities usually do when their faculty are not all, but like a lot of them do when faculty are cited in things, which is Brown University put out a press release saying, look at this. Emily Oster, one of our faculty members, was cited by a governor in an order issued by the state. Not, you know, which is fantastic because we've got this document, this glowing PR from the university explicitly declaring that Emily Oster was directly responsible for a bunch of child deaths in Evidence-based policy, Emily. There you go, (laughs) baby. Now, um, of course, pulled off of the Brown website. Of course, I guess, yeah. in, I guess indirectly, uh, what, whatever. Um, and when uh, when asked about this, so um, the Tampa Bay Times tried to reach Emily Oster to interview her about how she felt <laughs> about this. And uh, Oster would not uh, consent to an interview, but did to just mealy mouthed perfection, uh, send them the following statement. Quote, we did not consult with Governor DeSantis on these issues. Our paper is currently a preprint undergoing peer review. It relies on data from 2020-2021 school year. Prior to the emergence of the more contagious Delta variant, current CDC guidance taking into account the current virus situation and all available data on masking suggests masking for all K-12 students and staff regardless of vaccination status, which is a fantastic way of saying exactly nothing. She says basically, well, the CDC, like, uh, I didn't, I had nothing to do with it. The CDC, the, uh, the CDC says you should mask. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's a great anyway. way of disavowing, like, the fact that it wasn't just like the, the she, again, we should emphasize, like, when we, when we savaged the paper, uh, I don't know how many months ago this was now, um, I think one of the things that we mentioned is it's not just as if she's just like publishing this thing with her colleagues, like in in an obscure journal and just like letting it go. She's like actively promoting this. Right. So it's not like, um, oh, yeah, well, I guess we did that paper at a different time. It's like, no, you actively promoted this and you were trying like you like again, the Brown University publication. That was not like a uh, like a mistake. Like that is the impact that she sought. Yeah. And oh, what happens when you get it? Like, yeah, right. I never, <laughs> I, I played in shit, but I never thought that I would get dirty. Right. You know, like, <laughs> right. exactly. Of course. I mean, 
you know, Emily Oster has said, you know, that she's pro universal masking in schools, which like is great. But like if you read the people replying to her and engaging with her, like they're psychos, right? Like they're they're straight up covid deniers. And it's been that way for a long time. And, you know, it's it's great that like, you know, she's tweeting in support of of uh, universal masking or whatever. But I just I find it hard to believe that, you know, she and some other kind of like covid influencers of her level don't know what it is that they're courting with this. Well, and I think after months and months of reproducing the idea that kids are totally safe and totally fine and anyone particularly concerned about kids contracting COVID are not only crazy, but want to like damage the mental health of children. I mean, the way that Emily Oster has gone about portraying people who are really just saying, hold up, this doesn't look like a really good idea, Emily. Like, I don't think this is a good idea. She's been like vilifying her critics this entire time while reproducing the idea that, you know, of course, healthy children are totally fine. Remember her piece where she was like, your kid is like your unvaccinated grandma. And even when that was called out, she didn't even totally walk it back. And, you know, if you recall, Emily Oster in the spring was was basically preaching like this is going to be great. You're not going to miss out on sending your kids to camp and you'll get to take that vacation that you're owed and you'll get to do all this stuff. And when her concept of sort of rich wish fulfillment for the rich basically is panning out to be absolutely disastrous before our very eyes, she's nowhere to be found. So regardless of what her intent was in the first place, you know, I think the the reality is, is that there is this sort of twin problem of having overstated vaccine efficacy and really gone hard on the idea that like the vaccine is like perfectly efficacious against all transmission for months that they're having to walk that were you know these covid commentators are having to sort of walk back or modify you know that it's the only thing we have to do right the idea Mm -hmm. that the vaccine is the only thing we have to do is like very obviously i think false right now based on what you're looking at when with community spread if you actually know what you're talking about. But if you've been listening to people like Emily Oster, then this is really just a problem of those like damn unvaccinated people who, you know, we've spent months also turning into these sort of vilified figures that don't really deserve care. I mean, you have doctors giving comments and going viral on on Facebook for posting things like if you're not vaccinated, I'm going to drop you as a patient. I read a story this morning of a of a woman who is uh, working as an as a sort of a crisis nurse for like the Army Federal Reserve who goes out and she's just talking about her experience watching all these people die and stuff like, you know, it's this sort of it's shifted to this sort of like framework of like talking to the sort of white um, wealthy class as if like, okay, now we're entering this period of ennui where you're going to contemplate the deaths of the poor while you're, you know, your children are inconvenienced and you're kept from the pleasures of life and you're forced to just watch the suffering. And it, you know, it's absolutely cynical and sad and really depressing. Yeah. I think the guidance, right. Even what's going on, like it seems so confusing and contradictory to like interpret all the stuff that's coming out of, you know, health authorities like the CDC, whatever, like all these COVID commentators. But like, 
I really think like you just need to put on your like they live sunglasses because <laughs> what all that stuff is really saying is like, oh, well, if you're normal, you'll be fine. Right. But like they can't say it in those words. Right. So instead, it's just like layer on layer on layer of like individualization and like risk stratification and, you know, just all this bullshit that like we love to do. But there is a physician who is kind of in the like Oster orbit, the Oster, like Monica Gandhi, (laughs) you know, Tracy Hoagie, like that whole world of like you know, COVID influencers. Her name is Lucy McBride. And like, she she specializes. I mean, this whole group, I feel like they are using a very specific tactic of like flooding the zone with like non-peer reviewed publications, right? So they always have some like, oh, like we wrote about this. Like, oh, like what does this say? I mean, Vinay Prasad like makes these like dumbass YouTube videos. (laughs) Like, you know, just like just tons of content. But anyway, like this woman, Lucy McBride is like, she specializes in writing these articles that are basically just like, you know, like it's really emotional to learn how to live with risk, but that's what I'm here to help you do. You know, like (laughs) you can't, you can't protect your kids from COVID. Like it is really hard. You know, like I worry about my son, like driving a car, but I let him do it because there's no such thing as a risk-free world. And it's just like, I'm sorry, you're a psychopath. Like, (laughs) I'm not sure what's going to happen because I feel like people like Dr. McBride, you know, people like Dr. Oster have been kind of the Pied Piper of this small, I think, but very vocal, like, core of sort of parent activists who are extremely, you know, maybe live in sort of more liberal areas, but are like extremely laser focused on getting schools open again. And I'm I'm a little bit concerned about what's going to happen when like that core of parent activists, I don't know when their experience collides with reality, like when their kids are exposed to COVID at school, which is like very likely to happen, you know, even in, even in the blue States, like the highly vaccinated States, whatever, like I think we could see like really big Delta surges, especially among K through 12 kids. And I'm just wondering like, what's going to happen with all these parents when there's no one to be, to be, mad at right like because i feel like they've been mad at me personally for most of the last like (laughs) year and a half which is fine like that's okay but it's like i don't know what's gonna happen when they like realize that like what they have been kind of told is frankly kind of eugenicist bullshit absolutely Um, don't you think it's it's quite possible that it's like a when prophecy fails thing that in fact when when the prophecy fails um it just in some way they, they come up with an explanation mm-hmm. for why they were right uh, mm-hmm. to begin with. Right. That that seems entirely plausible. Right. And then um, I, I don't know what that explanation would be. It's probably even more uh, who knows, even more depraved. Uh, but uh, it seems entirely possible that, like, you know, if they're that pot committed uh, to this strategy that uh, they'll just they'll be just as selective uh, with their sort of. Uh, cherry picking of evidence from from even their own like lives or experiences that I, I wouldn't put that beyond them. Yeah. Well, and I think like the evil part of this is that the rhetorical strategy has already been kind of supplied for them, which is like to blame unvaccinated people, which I think it's a communications and a political strategy that has like paid off handsomely for the Biden administration because Oh, absolutely. Like I saw some polling recently and it was like, oh yeah, like twelve percent of people blame 
Joe Biden for like sure. what's happening yeah. with COVID and like some much higher, you know, like 50 percent, you know, blame the unvaccinated. And it's like, yeah, this is it. Like this is the this is like the final stop on like the personal responsibility railroad you know, like I'm vaccinated, I can do what I want. I mean, the whole the boosters discussion, like we don't have to get into. But like, I don't know, we were joking about the the New York Times podcast, The Daily, before we started talking. And like, <laughs> I love The Daily and I listen to it every day, but it is like a vaccinated people's rights like type of podcast. <laughs> sure, and I think that that type of like, I think that type of blaming strategy opens up like a lot of wiggle room to allow it gives them some room to like avoid the cognitive dissonance of like oh absolutely yeah it's displacement it's 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 sort of a way of displacing the sort of the the way that contagion works um and it'll i mean it allows you to sort of uh like refocus your attention on on something else i mean i think to me like the end you were asking what, what the end of the road for the personal responsibility train um is I, I've seen not one but several articles saying that uh, it's that there might be like an ethical argument for denying care uh, to people yeah. who are unvaccinated. And this is and I've I've seen this from like, you know, the sort of the well-meaning like liberal uh, sort of like press. It, it's it, it's a horrifying uh, it's it's like as horrifying as anything I've seen, like actually written up uh, the whole sort of like justificatory uh, strategy for this. I mean, it's, I mean, and you have to imagine that that, if anything, like reproduces it, it, it somehow like reproduces the same like effect, uh, and like, I don't know, social schism, like distrust in science. Like it's, 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 Mm -hmm. it's a horrifying thing to think that like, oh, a doctor would say, oh, it's, 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 I can now in this context, like avoid my, my oath. Um, it's, it's, yeah, it's very strange to be in that world. Well, I think this is all, I think so much of that I read as the, almost like the natural byproduct of like the game of telephone that happens, uh, when the whole sort of social reproductive apparatus of, uh, around the pandemic is not just the, obviously we've been talking for, you know, um, however many months, 18, 19, whatever, since like the, since the pandemic began, we've been talking about how this has been the like shining example of how the political economy of health uh, in the United States and abroad is like built around the individuation of risk and all of this like individuation of health responsibility and all this stuff. And that's part of how like health works under capitalism, unfortunately. But the other component of that, I think, is this sort of like consistent downplaying of tangible risks to other certain populations for example i think obviously is like for example present in the this is simply a pandemic of the unvaccinated line um but then in in the spirit of talking about for instance like kids uh since we're talking about uh school reopenings and stuff happening right now i think it's important to also talk about the degree to which as we've as we've mentioned right like you know we've made jokes uh over and over again about, uh, on this podcast about how um there's constantly risks downplayed with kids about for instance like uh kids are somehow like in <laughs> i guess are not actually human and therefore not vulnerable to the virus or or whatever and how they're like somehow uh like people people treat them like they're um, you know, completely like invincible to COVID or whatever. And, you know, that's, that's maybe an overstatement just slightly, but how that gets mostly socially reproduced through like just the, the sort of simple repetition of a couple of things. Um, I actually want to shout out this piece from the end of July by friend of the show, Jonathan Howard. 
who uh, who was writing about this in a piece called um, Cognitive Illusions and How Not to Write About COVID-19 in Children, <laughs> um, where he points out that basically, um, you know, it's not just like, yes, we can. Uh, I, I think we, for instance, uh, will hand ring a lot about uh, people like Emily Oster, Vinay Prasad, uh, Monica Gandhi, et cetera, et cetera. Stefan Baral, obviously, yeah. and the great, the great Barrington crew. Um, you know, we love uh, making fun of those uh, people. But it's also like it's also very present in the words that are specifically chosen and just like accounts by journalists or just like random stuff repeated in news or other accounts, obviously in public officials. But I'm just saying like in terms of um in terms of like media accounts, basically. Um, and Howard writes about this specifically saying that like, you'll notice even when there's an article that's about like, Oh, a school, uh, th- this school district shut down again already. It's only like, it's only been a week and like the school shut down already. School district shut down already. You'll still see these, these things, a couple of points that are like almost always in these articles. And they are something like Howard lists these three, uh, one, children are only b- about 0.1% of COVID deaths. Two, children are more likely to die of suicide than of COVID, which I think is the Emily Oster special, right? Um, an old one, yeah. <laughs> but a good one. Uh, and three is uh, COVID kills only about one in 50,000 kids. And so like a couple of things about that, B- basically what, what to, to make a long story short, like what, what Howard argues is that you know, sure, whatever, uh, the, the, you know, you, we can, we can debate those, uh, or we can, you know, talk about those in terms of like the statistical generation of risk and like this sort of risk theater or whatever. But what is never, what is almost never contextualized with those is a couple of other facts. These are things that are almost never, uh, printed with these that Howard points out, um, and vanishingly, if ever, printed together. So here are the following. So first of all, like COVID has killed more than 500 children at this point in the United States alone. First of all, 25% of those deaths were in quote unquote healthy children, as in, you know, people, uh, kids who didn't have quote unquote underlying conditions, which obviously is like a gross way to think about things. Beyond that, the most common condition that those kids who were quote unquote unhealthy uh, had was asthma, and yeah. I don't know if you've met children, but like a lot of children carry around inhalers, right? So also, it's, it's not, not like, like the life expectancy for a child with asthma is like ten years old, and they're dying or at seven. Should be lower. Right, <laughs> yeah. right, right, right. Exactly. Yeah. No, uh, and there's this kind of like there's this like weird framing where like health completely is distorted in right. this context. Um, just a, a few final final things, just because these are like never really focused on in media accounts. Um, Another one is that uh, as of I looked at the tracker yesterday, as of yesterday, according to the CDC, 4,404 children have been diagnosed with MISC after having a COVID case. Other things that uh, Howard doesn't point to in the article, but I think if I mean the time period, this is like this was published two weeks ago, so uh, probably I would imagine uh, this would become part of it now. But um, a few other facts that do seem rather important are that first of all, two thousand kids are currently hospitalized in the U.S. with COVID. Two hundred ninety-seven daily new children right. are hospitalized. Yep. And, you know, beyond that, some of the other statistics that like be mentioned at the top, for example, just about the, uh, the or that B and Abby, I think, mentioned at the top, just about the amount of cases that have been going around. And even though we, we're all under the auspices that it's in-person schooling or bust, no matter what, that is kind of the only option. And it's only about whether there's masks or not. Right. Like, even though that's the case, 
so many of those kids who are being forced to go back into the classroom physically are anyway immediately sent being sent to quarantine because like obviously COVID is spreading out of fucking control. Oh, yeah. And and I yeah. want to just put a pin in the, the children in the hospital thing for a second and visit on that point, because I, I think one thing that's being very missed in the coverage of this near universally is the fact that, you know, we don't actually have that many doctors that are pediatric intensive care specialists. All doctors are trained on adult bodies, right? So if you had a pediatrician that needed to step in and treat an adult, you're looking at someone who has the training. If you're trying to have an adult doctor who's never trained on children step in to treat a child, you're going to run into a ton of just knowledge gaps and Mm. errors because the training just doesn't work that way. The specialization works in the other direction. And when it comes to ICU specialists for children, there are very few of these doctors. They tend to be concentrated in major metropolitan areas. So what this means is that rural children who are already more likely to have a pre-existing condition just because of their lack of access to fucking healthcare in the first place because our country sucks... Like those kids, when they get sick, when they're in those rural areas, they are further from pediatric ICUs. They have less access to pediatric ICUs. So actually the danger that children are in cannot be overstated, I think, because we don't actually have the resources to support the amount of cases that we could possibly end up with if we yes. continue reopening schools. And I'm not yes. trying to like scare people that your kids are going to get sick and die. I- I'm just literally saying there is a percentage of kids that need the hospital when they get this. And we don't have all of this pediatric room or equipment or doctors or nurses. You know, this is stuff that has to be smaller. Dosages have to be different. It's totally different training. And we, you know, already 30% of healthcare workers are reporting that they are burned out and looking for jobs outside of the industry. Right. Yep. I want to emphasize this, like, (laughs) as I've been saying, yes, you know, like the hospitalization rate for children from COVID is low. I don't know what it is. It's 0.08% or something like that. But like, I will reiterate what I've been saying for the past 18 months, which is that a really tiny percentage of a huge number is still a big number. Yeah. Right. And there are something like 75 million kids under 12 in the U.S. You know, there is a big, big number of children who are like totally ineligible for the vaccine. And so when we talk about like ICU beds, that's really shorthand for like staff and equipment, right? Like Exactly. An ICU bed is not exactly the same thing as just like right. a cot in a hotel room. <laughs> and I think I was like doing some reading. The median number of pediatric ICU beds in like a given hospital in the United States is 12, right? So even if right. we're talking about numbers of hospitalizations that seem low in absolute numbers, you know, like 20, 50, whatever, like a pediatric ICU can get overwhelmed really quickly. And that's compounded. I mean, the the surge right now is in the South, right? Like the, uh, mm-hmm. the quote unquote underlying conditions that we're talking about children having are things like asthma and like obesity, right? Like not necessarily like complex 
uh, medical conditions, but like common, (laughs) common, you know, comorbidities that lots of children have. And I think this problem of hospital capacity in the South has been compounded by closures of hospitals, particularly rural hospitals. Southern states have been particularly impacted by that because like several of them didn't expand Medicaid. I don't know. It's just it's just a perfect storm of bullshit. And it was totally predictable. And when Delta started taking off, I mean, in the UK, I remember thinking that like we're pushing kids into the path of an oncoming train because certain people, you know, a certain class has decided that schools being open is a priority. And this same class really militates against, I think, doing anything to protect children from COVID. So I mean, but I think but I think the reason that is that I I genuinely think that that particular class is more risk acceptant because they don't actually the costs of risk for them are never really fully realized. They'll be fine. <laughs> and yeah, they'll they'll be fine. They they can afford access to like the absolute best care. They're not going to go into like crippling debt if there is a hospitalization. I think that in the in the sort of the background of this there is the sense that like, well, I'm fine. I mean, it's the Greg Abbott scenario. It's like, mm-hmm. well, they're just going to treat me with the absolute best shit and, <laughs> you know, uh and 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 there is I think at some level there is a sense that like there's a sense of a, a like virtual health system that exists in the minds of these people that they can't conceive of the idea that there would be people for whom going to the hospital would be an, an, an absolutely unimaginable and unaffordable expense. Yep. And that there would be some people whom they would not even be able to get there. And they also assume that like when you go to the hospital, you're treat you are automatically treated like they are. Right. Uh, when you when you are trying to receive medical care, so like I think that I mean part of the thing, and and this is this happens whenever I listen to, you know, NPR or you know any any sort of like mainstream outlet, is that I, I get the sense that there is this other, um, imaginary health system that exists, and and it's the same reason why it's like oh uh, people are like suddenly surprised like oh we're not doing contact tracing or like oh we can't collect data. It's like no shit, no yeah. shit. We're relying on data from yep. the UK and like Israel. Uh, we don't have a functioning like national health system in the United States. We're just relying on these like archipelagos of, of fucking like private knowledge that, oh, oh, at some point it's like uh, amazingly hard to imagine that they're, it's hard to splice all this data together. Uh, yeah, it's because you've created a fucking fictional system in your head about yeah, how all this have, stuff works. We have bourgeois activism instead of like a national health system that works. Right. Yeah. And it's, well, this, this is why and it's fucked. This is, this is why I always think the thing on, uh, you know, you mentioned earlier the daily Abby, but also something like, I don't know, like John Oliver's show or whatever, where he's constantly like saying very basic things that have often a very underlying, uh, problem of being from like within the capitalist political economy. And then like saying this thing shocked and incredulous and then just going, yeah, yeah. Oh my God. You know, like, well, I mean, I'm going to be really blunt to white, white people in America, to wealthy white people, like children don't die. Right. Mm -hmm. Like we don't think of children in the United States as having a high mortality rate. We think of ourselves as a, you know, celebratedly healthy country that has good access to health care and has a low child mortality. But Outside of wealthy white communities in the United States, that is absolutely not the case. I mean, Abby, you study maternal mortality. That's your literal area of expertise. What are deaths like among like, 
you know, parents of color and children of color in the U.S. Like, that's a very different world of child mortality and understanding because our healthcare system is so racist and so distributed along class lines that I think a lot of the people like Emily Oster, a lot of these white parents don't don't understand that there is a world that there is a there is a second United States that is right there in front of their eyes where child mortality is totally different than what they understand. Yeah, totally. And I think I mean, not only is that true, but if you look comparatively at other, you know, similarly industrialized, you know, like advanced capitalist (laughs) economies, the like racial and ethnic, you know, in public health, we call them disparities. (laughs) Um, You know, they are they are yawning for a lot of important health indicators within the United States. And then even if you look comparatively the United States to other, uh, you know, sort of capitalist (laughs) democracies or whatever you want to call it, are all of our health indicators are like a lot worse than all of those other countries. And that is like, I feel like there is like a stratum of like professional class people who have totally like huffed, like they've totally bought into the illusion that like it's possible to create like safety, you know, prosperity, whatever, like for yourself within like this kind of a system that is actually like perfectly constructed to make people sick, right? Like to make um, things that don't have to be risky as risky as possible. Like, I don't want to attribute like methodological individualism in the social sciences. I don't want to give that like too much credit, but like, I think that's how a lot of people think. And I think it's quite limiting. It's it's a little bit frustrating because it's like, okay, well, yeah, like within the US, you know, there is like yawning, like gaping inequality in health outcomes. And then between the US and other countries, like the US sucks. Like we come in, <laughs> like our maternal mortality rate for the whole country. Now, mind you, we didn't, we don't have a centralized like national system to collect data on maternal deaths. And so instead we have a hodgepodge of different states doing it different ways. It depends on like the uptake of like a new uh, U.S. standard death certificate, like different states took it up at different times. So we didn't even we couldn't even report a national maternal mortality rate until like I think in 2019 or 2020, we reported the (laughs) annual rate for like 2018 and per 100,000 live births. It's like (laughs) 1718 per 100,000. And if you compare that to something even like the U.K., which is not you know, the best country in terms of maternal mortality. It's like, instead of 18, it's like seven or eight per hundred thousand. So sorry for that, like little digression, but it's like, it's really stark. And I feel, you know, there, there's like a weird kind of American exceptionalism going on. And it's like, no, we actually (laughs) suck. And like, it's because it's because of how we like structure our economy, like how we structure like delivery of healthcare and stuff. And no one wants to talk about that. (laughs) Except you guys. And well, part of the problem is, is that I think so often when it is discussed in the media or when you're talking to those people whose whole lives sort of shield and protect them from this reality, what you really see is that that thing that that Howard identifies in his article that already brings up is sort of what facts are being presented together, what picture is being painted for people. Mm -hmm. And if you sort of keep um, if you 
keep your eye trained in a, in a certain direction, right? You're going to see one picture of American healthcare that that is positive, right? right. You're going to be able to say, "Listen, um look, there there have been over 624,000 people who have died in in the United States in the past 18, 19 months from COVID and only 500 have been children. Isn't that great? <laughs> but what if, what if I just said, you know, what if there was just a disease out of nowhere that killed no adults and killed 500 children? People yeah. would freak out. out yeah. People right, would exactly. flip out. Yeah. Well, but that's, I feel like that's where the work of these like influencers I mean, that's like the real, the, that's the real ideological work of all these like COVID grifters and influencers, right? Is to like reframe, distort, minimize, 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 you know, like deny, deny, deny. Like Monica, okay, I'm sorry to like pick on people. No, please. Oh, no. Like, she, Monica, can, she can take it. She can handle well, it. We, well, we always pick on almost the same people even more when you're off uh, off the show. So please join us in yes. uh, reinforcing <laughs> our uh, prejudices. Yeah. So Monica Gandhi, who's been literally wrong about every, everything. Yeah, but about, she can she can hear libel. So she can hear libel. Truth. So that's like she's like a synesthete, <laughs> but she can hear she can hear libel. Um, so she said, okay, well, first of all, this is not related, but I just have to flag it because it's hilarious. Please. She said that, okay, this woman, I'm gonna I'm gonna preface this by saying this woman is an HIV doctor. Okay, like she I, I presume that means she treats patients who are HIV positive. HIV is a virus. HIV mutates, I think, faster than any known organism, like faster yeah. even than flu, HIV-1. But Monica Gandhi said that uh, we shouldn't be worried about variants or as she calls them, scariants, because God. you're a pussy <sighs> if you're scared of getting COVID, I guess. She said that we shouldn't be concerned about future variants because a virus can't mutate that long and remain stable. <laughs> wow. <laughs> it's like, hmm. Are you uh, an HIV doctor? But well, she that's also, why the AIDS uh, epidemic ended in the 80s, right? Yeah, yeah AIDS that's was why over like, in 1984, Abby. What, you, what are you talking about? What you don't yeah. understand, Abby, is that she's a Straussian <laughs> HIV doctor, and there's an esoteric <laughs> meaning to these words that you just can't comprehend because you're not one of the elect. Yeah, oh my God, yeah. <laughs> um, it's it's on the level, it's on the same oh, level as boy. hearing libel. But anyway, where I'm really going, where I'm really going with this is that she... Um, She's been saying for, I mean, a lot, I mean, you know, she's prolific. She writes a lot of op-eds, you know, she's out there like on Twitter, on uh, news, you know, she's on like democracy now all the time. Um, but she's been saying that, you know, like, well, it's fine. Like kids, <laughs> all these people have like this really half cocked idea of like global vaccine equity. And they're like, no, we shouldn't vaccinate kids because those doses would otherwise go to low income countries, but like, that's not true. But anyway, she's, she keeps saying that adult vaccination protects kids and that like, okay, well, like, you know, we don't have to worry about it. We can just send kids back to school because if, if the adults around them are vaccinated, uh, then they'll be fine. But, uh, there's a fatal flaw in this thinking, which is that children aren't like randomly dispersed throughout the population of adults. <laughs> and in fact, I can think of like a couple of situations where children congregate camp, you know, K through K through 12 school. And it's just like, is there, I don't know. Like, I don't know. I'm, 
Like, what's the what's the fucking point? Like, I don't there's no point of there's no point in <laughs> arguing with these people. I don't know. I don't know. There <laughs> is. though. There is. I don't know. Maybe it's because Artie and I have spent like months digging through some of the most heinous shit heinous I've ever read. shit yes. ever um and you know as we read the stuff on covid we can't help but have deja vu because we see the things that we've you know read written by malthus like repeated yeah. almost verbatim by monica gandhi you know centuries later and you start to feel like you've fallen out of some plane of time into like the <laughs> eugenics zone yeah, where so- you know time has collapsed upon itself yeah yeah, so like, I don't know. It's just Vinay. Oh, so Vinay Prasad, another like shooting star out of UCSF medicine, like truly uh, a team of a team of rivals or whatever the fuck. <laughs> um, but like, he has been on this like crusade for the past couple of weeks about how masking children in schools should not be done without a randomized controlled trial to evaluate the effectiveness of masks in children. And again, like this is the poverty of like the evidence-based medicine guy brain. Like, I mean, there are many reasons why like doing a randomized controlled trial of masking in children in the middle of like a raging pandemic is (laughs) a stupid idea. Like clinical trials cost a lot of fucking money. There is, you know, like lots of observational data that indicates that masks like do work somewhat. I think it would probably be unethical to try to withhold masking from like, yeah. a, a, like one. Or to mandate uh, non-masking. I mean, yeah. in, the control, in, in the control group, would you not have to have yeah. uh, do, would, like mandatory non-masking? But that would actually, that would literally violate the rules that are set up for randomized control trials that are supposed Correct. to govern the ethics yeah. like you cannot actually ethically do a control group right now during a respiratory pandemic where you mandate withholding of masks that you would not be able to certify your contr- your trial also yeah, the whole literally. thing not also, get past the IRB right also, exactly just the whole thing like is it couldn't stupid. happen like, right. it's, well, it's a yeah, respiratory also, pandemic also masks are the things yeah, right. masks right. are the thing masks and here's but, Here's my question. So Vinay Prasad, he's like, he's an oncologist. He's a cancer doctor. Like, I want to know, like, does he wear masks when he sees his patients? I presume the answer is yes. Like, what's the evidence for that? Like, oh, my God. I don't know. No, no, no. But this is, this is, yeah. Uh, The, the randomista uh, as, as sort of the personage, right? Um, is I mean it's just one other so you're like asking like where this comes from for them I mean and I think I mean I have to imagine that part of it is this sense in which like the scientific culture is very much hived off from um, the like the rest of the world and like what's actually happening at at the like the coalface coalface of like where decisions have to be made right and Mm -hmm. that's how in a way that is uh, how I, I think that that's one like tendency randomistas sort of can have is the idea that like, well, if we can't experiment on it, we cannot know anything about it. And it's like, well, no, uh, there's plenty of like conventional and observational like knowledge and just a, a kind of a basic common sense about like how respiratory viruses work that would suggest that this is good. And the other question I have is like, why is masking the thing that you are so eager to, what I can't understand is where they see the costs coming from. 
right? Yeah, if this exactly. is if they're supposed to be doing implicitly this sort of like cost benefit analysis, I don't see how they they are like weighting the costs as almost this sort of metaphysical yes. um the phenomenological cost of wearing the mask. No, but I, I think part of it has to be that um, in the sort of like the background uh, sense of this is that like to wear them is to acknowledge that things aren't okay. Because that's in, in this case, that's all we're talking about. We're not talking yep. about any other measures. Yep. We're, all we're talking about is wearing masks. Go back to life, you know, like <laughs> r- roughly as normal, but like wearing masks that's all there that's all that's being debated in this particular context and the only thing i can think is that for them wearing the mask has some sort of symbolic resonance that it, it signals to people that things aren't normal and it, i don't exactly. know exactly i don't yeah. i don't know what what the putative cost of that would be i mean honestly like i was uh i was talking to, to dr howard about this whole scenario earlier this week and we were rereading his article for this piece and so i started digging through his book um because in his book he has this really good example it's it breaks through like a bunch of different case studies just talking about sort of like where diagnostic error comes from where like sort of physician um, thinking can get caught in like heuristic traps, right? Mm-hmm. And he talks about how sometimes there is this dynamic which is reproduced through medical education and sort of the ways that that doctors socially train each other um, yes. where if the patient is not getting better, right? Like doctors don't tend to say, oh, you know, I'm doing something wrong or this treatment that always works is just not working in this patient and maybe I need to try something new. You know, they tend to say the patient's not compliant, the patient's not keeping up, the patient's malingering, they are mentally refusing to not get better. And there's this sort of... um Real reluctance, one, to admit fault, partially because of the sort of social dynamics of the professions and the way they accredit and and organize themselves around this idea that you can only have sort of exponential excellence and correctness and that you can never sort of admit wrong or, or mistake. And, and then it creates this whole sort of dynamic where where doctors can never be wrong and admitting that maybe, you know, this idea about the pandemic going away in April because we were all going to hit herd immunity isn't totally working out. So let's adjust our treatment that that attitude that we assume is sort of present in medicine is actually really not present in yeah. medicine. And people yeah. tend to actually do exactly the opposite and blame the individual mm-hmm. for not conforming or responding to the treatment or following the rules instead of questioning why in the first place the patient's not responding to the treatment or the patient's not better. And there's this sort of frustration with the continuation and and the distension of illness, which is never quite really properly encapsulated by a a clinical encounter because they are so tied around the sort of billing cycle, the cyclicality, they are gatekept by time. And we put all these sort of impositions on how care should be that don't actually reflect how care is and happens, right? And, And combined with this respiratory pandemic and the approach that we've taken towards public health in the United States in particular that we've then sort of exported co- like our colonial product to the rest of the world, right? That, that, that up against a respiratory pandemic, it's exactly the wrong arsenal of tools, 
right? And and we and it is really important. It's not it's not fruitless to be frustrated and and to vent and point to stuff that's obviously wrong and and say it's wrong, right? Like it's actually very important because otherwise this stuff just goes unchallenged. Yeah. You know, doctors keep saying like it's not that I'm not like it's not that the medicine doesn't work. You know, it's that my patients are all like, you know, assholes who don't want to think positively. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. No, totally. And it's I don't know. I feel like there's like a really there's like an inbuilt machismo. And I don't know if that comes from like medical training or what. It's this just like almost disgust at people who are like, you know, fearful of contracting the virus, like fearful fearful of spreading it, like even would prefer not to get right. Like, I feel like there's this pervasive pervasive (laughs) environment of like machismo of just like, oh, well, you think you're spent like we're all we're all going to get it eventually. And it's like, uh, yeah, no, like like, that's the worst. Like nature is healing. Like, get over yourself. You're not the protagonist. I have have to say, too, again, you know, my position on this is I think that anyone who's calling for uh, like we need to do a randomized controlled trial of whether masking is important (laughs) in the respiratory pandemic is unserious and not worth being listened to fundamentally. But I will say Vinay. If you need a randomized control trial of, you know, whether masking works in the school setting, let me direct you to Mississippi, where uh, in the first two weeks of the school year being open this year, there have been logged 5,993 cases of students having COVID. Last year, in the same period, that number was 199. What is the difference between the situations, the contexts in which those two numbers arose? It's not just Delta. The mask mandate was dropped in Mississippi. Throughout Mississippi, there are not mask mandates in schools, whereas there were last August. Even if you just took, even if you accounted for like the idea that Delta itself was simply more transmissible, that does not account for such a dramatic spike in the same period. I know obviously they're not they're they're not directly comparable, but you know what? Neither is like covid deaths to child suicide. So like if you're going to play this shit just, you know, fuck off. Yeah. Also it's like the 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 school policies are treated as if they're in this one individual silo, right? Like Prasad always sort of talks about school policy and he's like he he always sort of points it out as this technicality like yeah well they've only they've only been back in school for 7 days so they actually got it outside of campus technically but it's you can't have it both yeah, ways <laughs> right like well f- and first of all like it it doesn't really matter where they got it because nope. if they have it and then they're in school with each other it yeah. will yeah. continue that to spread that seems elementary like that seems very elementary right it's not it's not like this and and this is part of the problem is that actually a lot of the way that these COVID grifters and, you know, sort of like fear is the virus chic um, influencers really forward this idea that we think about the virus as this kind of like verification step. Like it's like a QR code. You either have it or you don't. You either like have the vaccine protection or you don't. We sort of talk about getting COVID as if it is 
a possession or a physical object. And we talk about the vaccine like it is a physical, tangible, visible shield that we can see the holes in, right? And yet we pretend that the literal physical barriers that we're putting on our faces, which are masks, are phenomenologically like unreal, unknowable entities, right? So we've like completely flipped, I think, in the narrative and in the response to COVID, our understanding of even how the disease process works in the body. Because, you know, these people are not talking about it anymore. They're they're talking about incubation periods like it is um, a checklist of things that you have to go through instead of talking about it and thinking about, you know, that an incubation period is only as damaging as, you know, as so far as that person is moving throughout the community, right? Like these are just things that are not discussed anymore. And dropping that framework, I think, has been, you know, part of what these people are doing, Right. They're refocusing it into this sort of relation of property and possession. Do you possess a verified COVID test that you do not have it? Or do you possess a COVID test that you do have it? And and then what is the range that that possession is valid in? And they're arguing over, is it going to be 24 hours or 72 (laughs) hours? Like it is an NFT token that is fucking real and are verifiable you, right like are you pfizer gang or do you wear adidas <laughs> <laughs> exactly it's wild like these people yeah. are making shit up yeah you know and i think i don't want us to like lose sight of the fact that children are getting really sick children are dying these governors you know like I understand that a lot of these commentators like have no actual authority like within the U.S. government. But like, I don't think that these people have used their platforms responsibly. Um, I don't think that they have taken stock of who is listening to them and why. I mean, we're talking we're focusing on children. I thought children were going to be a line in the sand back last fall. And that didn't right. happen. And no, this fall, no. I was like, oh, well, certainly now with Delta, you know, kids are going to be a line <laughs> in the sand. And that's not happening either. We're talking just about children and children are getting really sick and dying like that is happening. And people are also dying. And I don't like we cannot we can't lose sight of whose advocacy, whose efforts are like enabling this kind of like truly murderous policy on the state level in the context of, you know, the Biden administration just being like, well, fuck you. You know, like we got vaccines into Rite Aid and you can (laughs) you can choose to get one or like uh, as a Twitter user, like (laughs) WSBGNL says, you know, like you can choose to get one or you can let like a lethal virus stalk you and and die right and it's like i don't know i don't know i don't know what the answer to this is but like i feel like there needs to be some kind of like reckoning with the role that like medical professionals specifically and like kind of academics more generally have played in (laughs) enabling this kind of policy and like advocating for this kind of policy. And I don't think it is at this point, I don't think it's good enough to, I just don't think it's good enough to say like, well, you know, like we didn't, we didn't intend for this to happen or like, you know, we didn't, we didn't coordinate directly with, you know, governor, what's his name? Like fucking pink dick antebellum, you know, Mississippi. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> the Santas, yeah. And like, I don't, I don't know what the, I don't know what the answer should be, but I'm really afraid because this has happened like so many times over the course of this pandemic that like, I don't know. There are people here who I think have a lot to answer for, but I feel like things are just going to get memory hold, and it's very hard to like. It's very hard to like key in to what's really going on, which is that yeah. like we pushed, we pushed, you know, millions of children in this country in front of an oncoming train with Delta. And because of our hubris, because of our wishful thinking, you know, that things that happened <laughs> to us before, things that happened in other places in the world were going to spare us this time, um, a lot more people are dying and it's fucked up because vaccines are available. You know, like there is no reason for this surge to be happening. And like with better public policy, with like a more engaged federal government, we could have prevented a lot of this. And it's really yeah. sad to see, you know, academics and like researchers kind of doubling down on harmful positions because I don't know why, I guess because their careers depend on it or no, they're, yeah. they're just hired hands. They're just hired hands. Any sense that they like any sense that their profession or like the, the logic that professions as they're established, like have some sort of like ethical or like moral claim, which is all that they do that. Right. That's that's the way the professions like emerge. They, they say that they have some moral claim, um, you know, that they have some sort of like authority uh, within the state of civil society, like. To, to make these claims and to like, you know, have some sort of control over their members. I mean, that's always been a fiction. Um, it's it's a fiction that sort of like lingers on. Uh, but these people, there's no formal mechanism within the, the worlds they reside in to uh, punish them. Right. No. They're not going to like lose out on. I mean, the, the money to support them doing these things is bottomless. Right. So, I mean, I do think this is like one place where. Um, the like just the circulation of of the, these narratives like these people are not blameless academics because this is the thing they will now turn to. Yeah, they, they will just say that they were not engaging in that way, that they're just um, doing research. They're just asking questions as if they weren't actually playing a role and, and like documenting and having a really good sense of what their connection to these policies were. I mean, I think it's very, very important because I mean, it's just like the people who promoted the Iraq war, you know, mm -hmm. you see what happens to them. Not, nothing really happened to them at all. Right. Yeah. And well, they like got cushy one, gigs. Yeah. Right. Exactly. They, they got quite cushy gigs. Now. But, but the question I think that people haven't really like tapped into or that I don't feel like I know, uh, you know, the answer to is how could it have been otherwise? Right. Uh, is it possible exactly. to imagine a place in which these people would have faced some sort of disgrace where they would have had to publicly recant um, almost like a truth and reconciliation process? <laughs> and I, and I, I do sort of think that that is a model that we should be considering and something we should be considering in yeah. the aftermath of this event. No one's talking about that. But I do think that, like, there are a bunch of people um, who are who bear some responsibility um, for what they've done and they're going to say well it was the heat of it was the the fog of war right but i think we know that those defenses don't make any sense now right because they're war criminals who would just say fog of war but we know that they're war criminals right um and i but i think that we need to like at least be thinking at least even if informally in those sort of terms yeah and i'm glad that you guys bring up this with all the stuff in mind that we've that you guys have just been talking about i think i want to just before we go 
read a couple of pieces of, I guess, let's say in the context of what Phil was saying, evidence, um, <laughs> if that makes any sense. Uh, I just, I, I just, I, you know, I couldn't, we, we haven't had Abby on in a little bit and I just wanted to get Abby's response explicitly, but also, uh, the two of you being Phil, um, of this, uh, op-ed from July 26th of this year by Monica Gandhi, Vinay Prasad, and Stefan Baral oh. called <laughs> LOL. What does public health really mean? Question mark. Oh boy. Lessons from COVID-19. Um, oh, fuck yeah. I'm not going to read all of this, but I'm going to read just, uh, just a little bit. And, uh, Abby, I don't know if we've done this with you on mic before, but just like jump it, like interrupt me whenever you're just pissed. Yeah. Like, I'll interrupt you or I'll notify you that I'll be filing a grievance with my union on this shit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. abusive. Um, um, at the end, you send the invoices for emotional damages to our email. <laughs> Which is monicagandhi at AOL.com. <laughs> um, so, uh, so in this, I'm not going to read all of them, but in this, they list the 10 principles of how the public health community should manage pandemics moving forward based on their lessons from COVID-19. Uh, here's one of them of uh, how important the precautionary principle is, um, which is the idea that you should, you know, when in doubt, do the more cautionary thing, essentially, from a public health perspective. Quote, in the beginning, precaution is fine in the beginning of pandemics. In the beginning of pandemics, precaution is fine, but eventually public health must be driven by data. The precautionary principle, <laughs> when you don't know, be careful, is a commonly used framework in public health. During COVID-19, this, this principle was often used pro to proactively close establishments without characterizing the contribution of those closures to overall transmission. Okay. But I'm, I'm ready to jump in. <laughs> because <laughs> Stefan Baral, who, I mean, I think has the tragic distinction of being like the only person alive who is like both a proponent of the Great Barrington Declaration and <laughs> considers themselves like a leftist sincerely. <laughs> um, wow. But like, I think it was, I think it was him. And if it wasn't, I apologize for misattributing this, but I think it was him that said like, well, you know, we talk about the precautionary principle in terms of closing schools, but you know, what if we, what if like the caught, you know, like what if there is a harm in closing oh, schools? God. Like wouldn't the precautionary principle mean that we should open them in that case? What and if it's we like, should take precautions by not closing schools? Did you ever think about that? Sorry. Literally. Like, and it's what? like, okay, well that's fine, honey. Like whatever you say, but it's interesting that they're like, uh, the, the lockdown proponents have not characterized, you know, the costs associated with their, position and it's like yeah well neither have you dumbass like what the <laughs> fuck and i mean it's fine you can say this kind of thing because you're not actually in charge of anything but like whatever okay sorry that's i all. mean yeah. that's all i have to say no no but that's exactly like this is exactly what we've been talking about the whole time which is these sort of like contextual juxtapositions to just ask existential what if questions about <laughs> the nature of you know covid transmission in the universe it reminds <laughs> me yeah it reminds <laughs> me of the like molina question that or the part of that uh theory that no one really talks about which is where he you know theorizes that blind people would not be able to distinguish between a man bleeding out in the street and a man peeing in the street <laughs> and were therefore 
you know, sort of hostile to society, that blind people were rude because they could not empathize, because they could not see pain and suffering. But you know what I mean? It's like that kind of like thinking that that thinking, which has always been the thinking of just asking questions about the nature of someone's existence and intelligence, you know, that's that's a very um, time old tradition where people just love to show whole ass and (laughs) and bring things together that that present a picture that has nothing to do with what they're actually talking about it's it's, you know it's beautiful as they as they say just to finish this bullet point out uh quote but precaution is not an absolute nor an indefinite mandate yeah it is a renewable contract oh a contract (laughs) yeah i love it um so here's another one of them uh i'm just again i'm just going to go through a couple public health should i think in the context of this not quote specify interventions without judgment Historically, public health tries to disrupt normal life and culture as little as possible while still preserving safety. Public health does not seek to change the way of life of the populations on which it serves. Um, That's interesting. uh, I'd be curious to see one piece of prima facie fucking evidence for this. Isn't that Uh, kind of the opposite? Yeah, show the data, sweetie. Like, yeah. but like, oh yeah, you know, we don't want to disrupt people's lives uh, in any way, but like hookworm, um, you know, <laughs> we're, we like, we're, we're trying very hard to preserve the way of life uh, while eradicating hookworm. This is, uh, yeah. it's called symbiosis, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and anyway, oh, uh, they, they go on to say public health does not seek to change the way of life of the populations on which it serves. Public health does not judge or shame people for what the desires that? of what the body or spirit. Sorry, sorry, like what is what is like wear a condom? Is right. that not changing a way of life? What, what is like practicing is safe sex? Is plumbing? that like not changing a way of life? What the what fuck? What is plumbing? <laughs> Do we still shit on the street? Like, <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Exactly. <laughs> um, <laughs> My TED my TED talk is gonna be like you know um uh, uh pretty soon science the data has told us we have plumbing um now many of you um will choose to shit in the street and that's fine and we're gonna encourage you to do that because uh, we're the epidemiologists and we think this is good here's um I know I know they have a top ten but I just can't uh, they're insufferable you can go read all of them if you want it's it, it's it's how come I'll just do my favorite three basically so this will be the third one public health should understand quote duty and sacrifice ah. Our parents' generation were willing to die for their country, and yet in modern America, <laughs> we're not we willing seem, to die enough. That's we seem you less pigs. and less able to even tolerate a minor inconvenience, which is rich Such as death coming from the people who think that masking is a sin against society. Listen, I that masking is the virus. Be, who think that masking should be illegal because it's right. traumatizing <laughs> to their kid like oh my god i think the yeah. minor inconvenience uh, they need is death don't you think yeah, <laughs> also, <laughs> our parents generation all- our parents sorry our parents generation let's let's be clear they wouldn't die for the like no they wouldn't this is insane uh yeah. maybe you mean their parents are, I, I, but also, also ne- nevertheless uh <laughs> yes we're not dying hard enough thank you dying for <laughs> your country sucks i don't recommend it at all yeah listen you have two options if you want to get into heaven you have to have a side hustle or you have to die for your country okay that <laughs> there's um no other way of 
proving to <laughs> who's the angel at the gates? St. George. Peter. You Saint have Peter. to run a small business in an economically distressed area for up to five years. No, and and I, I think um I, I appreciate you just keeping that to three, Artie, because I don't think you necessarily need more receipts that so many of they're these arguments are, the are bullshit. Yeah, exactly. Well, and they're totally unserious. Like, I don't know, for as much as like it's like this group, you know, and they love to like crow about like the data and following the data, <laughs> which like I mean, okay, I've been reading I've been rereading uh, like a Stephen Hawking book, like a brief history of time. I've been doing a lot of like driving lately. So I'm like listening to audiobooks, and I'm listening to this book after being immersed in this world of just the most like grievously annoying dipshits like in the world <laughs> for like 18, 19 months. And like listening to this book, it's incredible. Like you listen to him talking about his own work and you can you can see you know the the creativity like the thinking that like went into you know his his work on you know the origins of the universe and all of this stuff and then you contrast that with like these like i'm sorry like <laughs> executive track like md mph assholes and like they would have you believe that like the process of science or of like learning anything about the natural world which by the way, is not what we're doing when we're doing public health. Like public health is a social science that's like a little bit quantitative, but they would yeah. have you believe that the process of doing science is just like this incredibly joyless slog of like <laughs> tabulating data, like decoding the message that the data are trying to tell you about like what the right thing to do is and then like progressing to the next step and doing it again. And it's like, okay, but that's not even like that's. I, yeah, that's not even that's not even science. And it it totally sucks. It's just like a total it's a total bummer. But yeah, like this, like this group of, you know, sort of like covid minimizers, like, you know, their their tactic is to just like, again, flood the zone with like content and mm -hmm. for as like high and fucking mighty as they are about, you know, the <laughs> evidence and the data and whatever, like you read it and it's truly like eighth grade persuasive essay level writing <laughs> right and it's like yeah. it's about all these like abstract unquantifiable concepts right like duty and honor like the <laughs> nye prasad loves to talk about tribalism and i'm like okay well like show me show me cool. the data sweetie like i don't even know how you would operationalize that and that's fine like i don't think it's bad for you know scientists or physicians or whatever to do sort of like more conceptual you know like more popular writing or whatever, but it's just like, are you serious? Like you're going to hand me <laughs> like, yeah, like you're going to hand me like an eighth grade essay and then like get on my case about how like I'm too stupid to, to know what's going on because I'm not looking at the data. And it's like, I'm sorry. I know for a fact you had one biostatistics class <laughs> in your yeah. like executive MPH. Like you don't have a fucking clue what you're talking about. And your work is bad. Like their work is bad. Like their popular writing is just bad. That's all I'm getting at. Yeah, no, I mean, but this is, I think that this is why I was sort of not joking when I was calling them like Straussian, like epidemiologists. <laughs> I do think that they sort of maintain. And I think this is sort of what the rhetoric of like contrarianism, which if you think back to like contrarianism is a sort of fundamentally conservative, mm -hmm. um, 
uh, part of conservative rhetoric, uh, perversity and fatalism are like deep, 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 like, you know, centuries old parts of conservative rhetoric. So like, um, like I do think that that it sort of sustains this almost like, well, we're very smart and there's a sort of esoteric knowledge that we have, which in a way can't be challenged. Like it has nothing to do with what they're actually presenting. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I'll do one fourth one and then we should, then we should wrap up. I forgot about the very funniest thing okay. in this. So again, this is, I don't, I don't remember if I mentioned this, but this is, yeah, this is the op-ed by those uh, three fuckers. Uh, this is, you know, the op-ed by like Baral, Prasad and Monica Gandhi. And I forget if I mentioned, but it, it was published in BMJ. So this isn't just like one of uh, Prasad's like med page today things. This is in the British <laughs> medical journal, which is hilarious. Um, so messy. I forgot the very best one, but uh, Abby, what you were saying reminded me of this. Um, Public health should embrace, quote, debate and dialogue. Mm. Engaging in discussions about the validity of complementary or even contradictory inferences can support an effective response. However, it is not feasible to engage meaningfully with 280 characters. He means they mean Twitter. Or if value judgments are ascribed to only certain positions. Public health means the consensus view may have blind spots. So we must encourage healthy debate and dialogue. Debate was stifled during COVID-19 in the name of fear. We witnessed social media platforms censoring scientific views and positions only later to rescind those bans in parentheses. Ergo, the lab leak hypothesis. Oh, Oh, yeah. (laughs) Okay, a few things to say about this. Um, For one, these people tweet more than anyone I've ever seen. So, like, you know, just keep that in mind whenever they're, like, Mm -hmm. pissing and moaning about Twitter and how it doesn't foster dialogue or whatever. I do think there was some silencing that has gone on in, like, on social media and whatnot. But I don't think that, like, people that publish, you know, like, six six op-eds a week are necessarily the ones that are being silenced. Uh, John Ioannidis, who is, um, you know, like a <laughs> extremely prolific, extremely famous professor at Stanford who does like meta science, which I mean, it's a conversation for another day why I think meta science is like a waste of time. But um, he went after like a graduate student that was like critical of Ioannidis's like infection fatality rate estimates from earlier in the pandemic and like John Ioannidis like went after this guy personally in like published like scientific writing right like he had a whole appendix where he was just like attacking this guy and his Twitter account and whatever like I know that I I mean I (laughs) I cannot be silenced but like I personally (laughs) like I was a lot more sort of active in you know the discourse or the public debate or whatever like last year around this time, like over the winter. And like, I did face like real, I mean, not severe consequences, but I did face real social and professional consequences for that. Um, yeah. And it's just like, well, okay. Like, thank yeah. you so, thank you so much for your commitment to civil debate. But like, I'll believe it when you start like acting in accordance with like the shit that you bloviate about in like, Instead yeah, of just, like sitting around and being like you know what public health means dialectics <laughs> <laughs> yeah here's a completely wrong definition of harm reduction enjoy what if yeah what if data but hegel god 
<laughs> All right. I think that's a good place to leave it for today. Abby, as always, such a pleasure to have you back. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for coming. Um, listeners, thank you. If you want to support the show, become a patron at patreon.com slash pod. We do two a week. This is a free one, so if you become a patron, you get access to all of our weekly bonus episodes. And um, Every Monday. Every Monday. And we'll leave it there for now. We'll catch you next week, or if you're a patron, we'll catch you on Monday. And as always, Medicare for all now. Solidarity forever. Stay alive another week. Abby, can we get your best Michael Barbaro? <laughs> huh. <laughs> hmm. I'm not very good. I'm Michael Barbaro. <laughs> this, that's good. Here's what else you need to know today. <laughs> yeah, he, he he mushes all of those words. <laughs> I know. His, uh, his like mode of speaking is like right skewed or no left skewed there's like a long left tail and then he like pushes <laughs> everything <into> the- <laughs>
I'm Michael Barbaro. Huh. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> huh. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> you should totally um, just put you. this at the end. I'll put it at the yeah, end. Yeah, put it at yeah, the oh end. God. People will get like two and a half minutes of hmm. 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 I like the idea that uh, you just could put together a little soundboard of vaguely interested oh, but no. vaguely like disaffected um small noises that you could put together to just use in everyday life of just michael barbaro sort of having ennui and and just being unsure but definitely interested in that's, what yeah that's you know. definitely what we would do if we have to convert the death panel into a shock jock hour <laughs> at any point just like Michael Barbaro <laughs> ASMR. It's just, just like in the same way that the uh that uh what was it? Uh wasn't it the like tick and tack, the uh the um the, the clap it brothers. Click and clack. What did you call them? Tick and tack. Michael Bar yeah, Ma- Michael Barbaro is car talk for people who need their Excel program to be fixed. Like, ah well, <laughs> what you gotta do is uh <laughs> No, but I'm just imagining. You gotta get one of those macros going. I know that the there was a it was long presumed that the uh, that some of the laugh uh, like they had a laugh track of themselves. No, basically, what? so that they could. Yeah, I don't know. I I don't know where I heard this, but I've heard I've heard. I remember hearing that like on the production end of that, there was like a laugh track of themselves, which is why sometimes it like sounded like there were like very, they have very, you know, repetition, whatever. It may not be true. They may just like make themselves chuckle in exactly the same way over and over again. But I'm just imagining that that's also how the daily is put together. Like, I like the idea of instead of like, you know, on the shock jock radio hour where you have those like uh, funny whistle noises, like, the instead it's just a bunch of hmm well hmm 